<clears throat> Last Sunday morning, I, since it was the first day of the year, I wanted to encourage everyone to start off by reading their Bible. And hopefully you have accepted that challenge. If not, uh, there's still some brochures on the table in the foyer. Uh, there's two different uh, programs. Uh, one reads, I think, four different passages uh, for the day. And uh, the other two, which is the purple or the blue one and the pink one, uh, actually has uh, uh, Genesis and it starts off with Genesis and Psalms. If you did not take one last week and you want to do that, I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to take one of those and mark it as you read it. You may not be able to read it every day, but just set the goal to get through the Bible, to study it, to read it. There may be passages that you've never read, that you may have never looked at, and it gives you an opportunity to do that. As I mentioned on those brochures, you only read for the first 25 days of the month. And so if you're behind a week or a day or whatever, you can catch up during that period of time. But I just want to encourage you to read God's Word, study it, put it in your heart. Don't rely on someone else to just tell you what it says. Read it for yourself. I've heard that it's a good book to read. And so I hope that you will take advantage of that. By the way, they had to take it off of the bestsellers list because it outdid all the others and it continued to do so. So it's not on the bestsellers list for that reason because no one else could compete with it. Think about that. Last Sunday also in the morning service, we looked at Joshua and how God told Moses or told Joshua that Moses was dead. And he was very blunt about it. And we took from that a message that tells us that we're to put the past behind. And we concentrated on verse 9 where it says, "...have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest." And I want us to think about that for the entire year, that God is with us. And we need to be strong and we need to be courageous. And we have passages of Scripture in the New Testament that reminds us of those things. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, "...no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God." And so we need to understand that we're not to look back. And sometimes we look back at the regrets and all the awful things that we do. We need to just put those things behind us. If we've taken care of it with God and we've had it washed away by the blood of Christ, there's no reason to concentrate on those things and worry about those things that we've done in the past. God's taken care of those things and we need to trust Him to wipe that slate clean. We find in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 that it says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so the promise that Joshua had to be strong and courageous and that God would be with him is basically the same thing that we have today. We know that God is with us, and if God be for us, who can be against us? And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Those are Scriptures that we have committed to our memory and to our mind to remind us that God is there to help us to be strong and courageous. And in the world that we live in today, it takes courage to stand up and let people know that you're a Christian, that there's something different about your standard of life than the way the world lives. And we need to understand how important that is. And the greatest thing that will follow us, because we know that good things will happen to us if we trust God and if we are obedient to God, we know that good things will happen in this life. Oh, we may be persecuted. 
But we have the peace that passes all understanding. We can have that joy of salvation in our hearts. But the greatest thing that we can look forward to is our home in heaven. Heaven will be worth whatever we have to go through in order to get there. You think about that. And when I think about heaven, there's two things that come to my mind. First of all, it's the sacrifices that a faithful Christian must make. Because as we go through this life, there are things that we have to give up. Things that we have to avoid. Things that we have to stay away from. Things that we need to involve ourselves with that the world may think is kind of crazy. But we need to realize those sacrifices will be worth it. And then I also think about what is to come for those who remain faithful. Think of the joy of heaven. We sing songs about it. All the songs this morning was about heaven. I want to thank Chris for that. He had a little insight into what we were going to be talking about this morning. And so it was encouraging to sing about heaven. And we sing songs. And we look forward to that place. But I'm not sure that we can even comprehend how beautiful heaven must be. You see, we look at this world that God created and we can see the sunsets and we can see the rivers and streams and the mountains and different things that we can look at. And they show us the beauty of God. But I think that there's nothing in comparison to what our home in heaven will be like. Because still here with all the joy of nature and the beauty that God created that shows us His handiwork, we still have to deal with sin. In heaven, we won't have to deal with sin. In heaven, we won't have to deal with death. In heaven, we won't have to deal with sickness. We won't have to deal with separation. So much that we won't have to deal with. Can you imagine how wonderful that place will be? You see, the reward of heaven will be worth whatever the cost. And I think Paul, when he wrote to the, uh, to the Romans, com- communicates that thought quite well. When he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And as we look this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about Paul and what he went through, and we can see how he suffered. But yet, what's he saying? All the things that he's going to go through, all the things that he suffered, doesn't compare to the glory that we'll receive when heaven becomes our dwelling place. Then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, working on this sermon, and looking at Paul and looking at all the things that he's gone through, and to say something like, for our light affliction. Think about it. Think about those words. Remember those words when we get to that point in this lesson this morning. He compared it to nothing. It's nothing compared to what heaven will be like. Heaven will be worth it. It never hurts for us to be reminded of both the cost and the rewards of being a child of God. You see, the cost is, first of all, Jesus tells us, Jesus must come first. He said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, which was read for us, and He said, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoso shall save his life shall lose it, but whoso will lose his life for My sake, the same shall save it. What's Jesus saying? We have to take up that cross. 
And we have to take up that cross daily. It's not something that we just pick up on Sunday morning and we carry it and then, and then we, we, we set it back down. It's something that we pick up daily. What is that cross? It's the burdens that we have to deal with in this life. The trials, the difficulties, the, 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 the temptations, all of those things are part of that life. People making fun of us, the persecution that we may go through in this life. Jesus says He still has to come first. And sometimes it's not the bad things that we look at. Sometimes it's those little things that get us off course. Getting involved with things that we shouldn't. Loving money more than we love God. Loving people more than we love God. Jesus has to be first in our life. And that means, as He tells us, that they have, He has to come for, uh, first before anyone else, even our own families. And that's hard because, you know, I love my family. I love them dearly and I would, I would do lots of things for them. But Jesus says He has to come first. Which means I have to love Him more than them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 and 37, Think not that I'm come to send peace to the, on earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man at variance against his father and, his do- and the daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, don't let your family stop you from being faithful to God. Don't let your family come in the way of you being obedient to the Gospel. You know how many people I know that got to the point where they know that they need to be baptized into Christ. They know what they need to do in order to be saved, but they won't do it because their family stands in the way. And how sad that is to know that they're going to be lost Because they love their family more than they love our Lord. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus tells us. We have to love Him before anything that the world has to offer. He said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 25, For what is a man advantaged if he shall gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? And in verse 33 of Luke chapter 14, he says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciples. You know, that's a tough saying that Jesus is telling us. That we have to carry that cross daily. We have to follow Christ daily. We have to love Him more than our family, which we can see and they're right here with us all the time. But now he's telling me that he has to be first when it comes to the things in my life. That I can't allow my work to get in in, in the place of God. I can't allow my entertainment to get in the place of God. I can't allow anything in this world to come before God, before Christ, before Jesus. That's what he's telling us. And that's the price that we have to pay. And I ask you, would heaven be worth that? I think the Bible shows us that it will be. You see, we must also be willing 
to suffer for Christ. We must bear that cross and come follow Him if we want to be His disciples. When you think of Jesus carrying that cross, just carrying that structure wasn't really the burden. The burden was what was going to be done on that structure. What was going to be done because He was the Son of God. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Jesus came to this earth to die. And He's really the only person that His whole purpose in this life was to come and to die on a cross for you and me. That's what He came for. To save His people from their sins. Oh yes, He lived a good example and that was something else that He did while He was here. But it is something that He looked forward to even though in the garden He was in agony because He was 100% human but also 100% deity. But the flesh knew what was going to happen. And so Jesus was willing to suffer. And because we're Christians, because we're Christ-like, we're going to suffer as He suffered. You see, we live in an ungodly world. And that world may ridicule us because we are followers of Christ. They ridiculed Jesus. They ridiculed Him even while He was on the cross dying for their sins. The people that that were ridiculing Him while He was hanging there. He was dying for their sins. People may make fun of us. The second Timothy chapter three and verse twelve says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Notice it doesn't say he may suffer persecution. It doesn't say he might suffer persecution. Brethren, if you are living a faithful life to God, you will suffer persecution. And that persecution may come from the world. People out there that work with you, people that go to school with you, people that know you, or it may even be your family. Because sometimes our family, they don't want us to do what's right. Especially if they're in the world. It may be physical. First Peter chapter four verses twelve through thirteen. Beloved, think not it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. People may hurt us. In some parts of this world that we live in, just being a Christian, walking around with a Bible, and they find it on you, can cause you to be severely beaten or to cast into jail and prison. Maybe even put to death. We're very fortunate in our society that we live in that we don't have those fears. But those days may be coming. And I'm sure that there are people in this world, even in our own country, that despise you just because you're striving to do what's right. And it's difficult sometimes. But is heaven going to be worth it? And so there may be physical persecution, but there also may be verbal persecution. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, But I say unto you which hear... Love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Do we do that? 
Why do we? Why should we do that? Why should we pray for those who are our enemies, those who curse us, those who despitefully use us? Why? I'll give you one answer. Because we realize what's important in this life. And it's their soul. They may not realize that. And then they need to see, like Jesus demonstrated, that there's something different about us. Will heaven be worth it? I think that's yes, it's the only answer we can come up with. Other things that we must endure for the sake of Christ is our own personal weaknesses. As we struggle with sin in our life, it's difficult sometimes as we go through this life that when we realize that we have a weakness and we give into it and we ask God to forgive us and to help us and we give into it again and again and again and again and we continually pray to God. It gets discouraging, at least to me, when that happens. But God's there to help us. And He's not like uh, somebody sitting up there with a club that when we make a mistake, He's there to knock us down. He wants us to do what's right. He wants people to be saved. He wants you to be saved. And when we're dealing with our weaknesses, He'll help us. But we also have to help ourselves. And sometimes the answer is studying God's Word and putting that Word in your heart and applying applying it in your life. Sometimes it's encouragement that we get from one another when we confess our faults or sins one to another. And we can help each other to overcome those weaknesses and to become stronger and better Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He realized that daily he had to do things to try to keep on track, to stay focused. And sometimes we get off track and sometimes we give in to those temptations because we take our focus off of the things that are above and we start to focus on the here and now. We also have to deal with the disappointments that are brought on by other Christians. Disappointments that sometimes we have to deal with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 29, Paul writes, Besides those things which are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the cares of all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is offended and I burn not. Sometimes in dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes it gets very discouraging. And why does it get discouraging? Because you see some who do nothing. Oh, you say, well, you don't know what I do. Well, maybe I don't know what you do. But are you doing anything for the cause of Christ? Unfortunately, in the church many times, it's like Bible class. We let everybody else talk and we're going to be quiet. And sometimes in the church, it's the same way. We're going to let everybody else do the work, but I'm not going to do anything. But when you're telling someone what the church does, 
you'll say, look what we've done. As Brother Meade used to say, do you have a mouse in your pocket? Who's helping you? Are you doing it? You see, sometimes in this life, we're all supposed to be workers for Christ. I understand that there's times that we may not be as strong as we should be. We haven't matured as a Christian. But when we've been in the church 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and we're still not doing anything for the cause of Christ, except showing up, it may be time, it may be time to examine our Christianity. Those who have irregular attendance make it difficult to depend on them. Those who unwillingly, uh, unwill, those who have unwillingness to serve, creates a burden on others who will serve. Those who murmur and complain about what is done hinder those who are doing it. It's discouraging sometimes when you're doing the best that you can and someone else is going to tell you how to do it. I always love it when I'm painting and somebody comes in and they want to say, oh, you should do this. Do it this way. Do it this way. You know what I do? You know what they do? Shut up. Don't tell somebody else how to do it if you're not willing to help and do the work. And don't complain and murmur when somebody else does it. When you had an opportunity to do it yourself or to help or to be involved and you didn't choose to do so. That's discouraging. But yet, as a faithful Christian, you keep on keeping on. Why? Because that's your duty. That's your your job, your responsibility to be the Christian. And you're not dependent on someone else to get you to heaven. You've got to get yourself to heaven through the blood of Christ. And you say, well, I, I do so much. No one's doing anything else. Let me ask you, how's that going to look on the Day of Judgment? Is the Lord going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or is He going to say, depart from Me, you unprofitable servant? The Lord wants us to be profitable. And as Christians, when we are profitable, when we're doing what we're supposed to do, sometimes it gets discouraging when people are just murmuring and complaining. Even if we escape all of that, if we escape all the things that I just mentioned, we still need to be willing to expend our time and our effort in promoting the cause of Christ. We still, every single one of us that's a Christian, has a responsibility to take the Gospel out into the world. Oh, you may not be able to proclaim it like some. You may not be able to, 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 to talk at great lengths about uh, some particular subject, but you can tell someone about Jesus Christ. You can tell them what you did. You can tell them what you did in order to be saved. And you can give them that hope. And if they want to know why you have that hope, you as a Christian should be able to tell them why you have that hope. You shouldn't have to say, well, let me grab Brother Sonzo and he can tell you why I have that hope. Because what do you tell them? 
I don't really have that hope. I just hope He can tell you about my hope. <laughs> I hope you get my point. A lot of hopes there. And sometimes we do that alone. Sometimes we have to go out and tell somebody the gospel or teach someone the gospel all by ourselves. And sometimes there's only a few people that are willing to do it. And sometimes we have to go into difficult places and difficult situations where few people appreciate what we do. And there are many things that may hinder us and burden us, the trials that we have to face. But if those who re- but those who remain steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, the Lord tells them that heaven will be worth whatever the cost. So don't look at everybody else and say they're not doing anything, so I'm not going to do anything. You do what you're supposed to do, no matter what. And then we're going to look at the rewards of discipleship. Paul wrote, and we know that Paul was an individual who endured many hardships. And I kind of abbreviated what he said so it would all fit on the screen. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23-27, through 27, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, saved one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the heathen, in perils of the, in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the, in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in, in, in cold and nakedness. Who's got a list like that in their own life? You got a list that can compare to Paul? But what did he say? Light affliction compared to the glory that was to come. Kind of embarrassing, really, when you think about what we whine and complain about and you look at someone like Paul and what all he suffered and what he went through. Will heaven be worth it? Well, what did he say? He looked forward to a house not made with hands. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse one. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He looked for the riches of God's grace in Ephesians chapter two and verse seven, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. He looked forward to a glorious transformation. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, for our conversation is in heaven. From hence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the workings whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. 
He looked forward to a crown of righteousness. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. He looked forward to a heavenly kingdom. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 18, when he says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All of those light afflictions, often near death, stoned, beaten, put in prison, shipwrecked, floating adrift, All of those things He did for the cause of Christ. And did He think it was worth it? He most certainly did. Look at what Peter has to say. This is the words that Paul wrote concerning the apostles. When it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9-13, through For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. Look what Paul Peter goes through. Legend has it he was crucified on a cross hanging upside down because he didn't think that he was worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did. But he was persecuted. He was reviled. He was hated. He suffered all the things that he went through. Did he think that it was worth it? Look what he looked forward to. An inheritance that's imperishable or incorruptible, undefiled, and reserved in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, or verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercies hath begotten us again unto the lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what he looked forward to. And because he could look forward to that, it allowed him or helped him to endure whatever he had to go through to get there. When you look at Paul, when you look at Peter, and when you look at your life, whatever you go through, persecution, ridicule, made fun of, whatever it may be, is heaven going to be worth it? Maybe it costs you a friendship to be a Christian. Maybe it costs you your family to be a Christian. Maybe it costs you a job. Maybe it costs you a lot. Is it going to be worth it? We're going to look at John. John who suffered tribulation 
He says in, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was exiled. But out there in no man's land, away from family, around, away from people that he would have associated with as Christians. He's out there all by himself. Was it worth it? He suffered persecution too. Was it worth it? He was blessed. He was blessed to see the joys of those who were triumphant over tribulation. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And then down to verse 13 through 17. And one of the elders answered and saying unto, unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence they come? Or whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, and he said unto me, These are they which came, come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes. And then he goes on, and we see in Revelation chapter 21, where he is blessed to see the destiny of those who are redeemed, those who are saved forever by God. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea, and I, John, saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from God, out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He shall dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God, shall, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountains of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then down in verse 11, 10 and 11, he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal." You can read the rest of that chapter and then you can see the beauty that is described in heaven of the precious stones and the, and the golden street. And we can see all of those things in that picture and many will say, well, you don't know. That's all figurative. 
All I know is this. It may be figurative language, but if it takes those kind of words to describe what heaven is going to be like, I can't even imagine what it's going to look like. And I want to be there. John goes on. In chapter 21, beginning in verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is that light thereof. And the nations of them which which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall be shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then down in chapter 22, beginning in 1, it says, verse 1, it says, And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the streets of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruit, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, And His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God dwelleth or giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's the picture of where we're going. That's the picture that John wanted us to see. And perhaps words that we could understand may not adequately describe what heaven will be like but it will be worth whatever we have to go through to get there. I hope you want to go there. Read those chapters. Oh, it may not be scheduled, but you can read those chapters and chuck them off wherever it's at in your schedule. But read the description. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Don't you want to see it? We see His handiwork in the creation. I want to see His handiwork in heaven. I want to go. And I hope you want to go. And can there be any comparison? When you think about it, heaven will surely be worth it all. Between the, when we think about the life that we live here, the years of service, and as Jesus said, when you've done all that is your duty to do, consider yourself still an unprofitable servant. When we've done it all, when we've done as much as possible, it won't compare to the reward that we'll receive. At the end, an eternity in the presence of God. Heaven will surely be worth it all. We've read the words of Paul, the words of Peter, and the words of John.
What if they could return and speak to us today? What do you think they would say? What about faithful Christians, faithful loved ones, people that maybe we've known that are faithful and passed from this life? What would they tell us if they could come back? They would tell you, you need to do whatever it takes to get there. And what it takes is taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. Denying yourself and living for Christ. They would tell you just what the Bible tells us. That heaven surely will be worth it all. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, or 35 and 36, it says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. The Hebrew writer says, Do the will of God. Live here, be faithful to God, and you'll receive that promise. I ask you, I want you to examine your own heart. Not the person next to you. Not someone across the aisle. Your own heart. Are you living as faithful to the Lord as you possibly can? And if not, what are you going to do to change it? What are you going to do in your life to live more faithful to God so that you can have that home in heaven? If you're doing everything that you can do now, I want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. Because as it tells us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap if we faint not. Don't get tired because you may be the only one that you see working. You just keep on keeping on. If you're doing all that you can for the cause of Christ, keep on keeping on. But if you're not a Christian, then heaven's not going to be your home. The Bible plainly tells us that. You have to be a child of God. That's the only place we see security is in the Lord's church. And to become a member of the Lord's church, which is the body of Christ, we need to be baptized into Christ. Because there we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We go down into that water. We come up out of that water a new creature in Christ. As for those who you know, think that the Lord's going to refurbish this earth, you notice all the Scriptures, Paul Peter talked about a new heaven and a new earth. He didn't say anything about a refurbished old earth. John said a new heaven and a new earth. A holy city. He looked at all that. He didn't say a refurbished. And I don't care what kind of car you have. If it's an old car, you fix it all up. You clean it up. You paint it up. You make it look like new. It's still an old car. I got a 2004 Chevy pickup in my driveway. You can come and refurbish that anytime you want. But when you're done, it's still going to be a 2004 Chevy pickup truck. And it's pretty rusty, so if you want to do that, feel free. So we look for a better place that God has prepared for us. And if you're on your way there, stay on that road. But if you're not on that road, get on that road. And if you need to be baptized into Christ, we're here today to do that for you. If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, 
feel free to do so. Come and have a seat up here on the front row while we stand inside.